Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it is my joy and privilege to be able to welcome you all, whether you are here with us in person or watching on the live stream uh, for our worship this morning. And so, especially for our live stream viewers, whether it's through Facebook or YouTube, we want to uh, not only welcome you and invite you into our community, but maybe ask that you check in. Send us a like, do something like that, something that we can incorporate you into our community as best as we are able. If you're visiting with us in person here this morning, we are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us. We hope that out in the narthex, somebody greeted you with what I call the bag of swag. You like that? I even thought of the rhyme this morning. Come and get your bag of swag, all sorts of good stuff for you to enjoy. We want to welcome you. Uh, part of our vision as we talk about loving God, loving one another, and loving our community is we want to uh, initiate friendship with everybody. And so to that end, if you are on the end of your row, you will see a pad. That's a friendship pad. We'd ask you to sign that and then pass that down to your neighbor. And so this is whether you are a member, a long-time attender, uh, or visiting for the first time, if you are led, we would ask you to sign that. So this morning we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's Supper, a very special time. I always love it. Um, this is God's hospitality, where he is inviting us to his table. And so hopefully we prepare our hearts for him to feed us with his grace and his mercy. A couple of quick reminders uh, in your bulletin, beginning in October, we're going to be starting many of our home fellowship groups. All of the, uh, the ones that are being offered this fall are in the bulletin, so I would encourage you kind of at the right time to read those announcements. If you need to find a new one or want to find, you know, I have not been a part of one and want to be a part of one, the leaders are there. You could call me. You could call the office. We would love to help you out there. And then this Friday is the meeting of the bookbinders. They are going to be meeting at the home of Marianne Johnson. So just a reminder about that. So those are some of the things that are going on in the life of the church. And so now as we hear the prelude to lead us into worship, let's prepare our hearts to come into the very presence of God.
Mary, thank you so much for bringing us into the presence of God with one of my favorite songs, Great Are You, Lord. What a great, great song to usher us into the very presence of God. Our call to worship this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans. Notice the theme there. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for calling us into your presence this morning to bring you glory and praise, to declare great are you, Lord. You are faithful and just. We love you and we praise you and we invoke your name this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be with us, to lead and guide us as we praise you through songs, through hymns, through prayers, and as we hear your word and come to the table this morning. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather as a people to declare your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing one of the great hymns of the faith.
seated. Just think about those words for a second. No condemnation, now I dread. Can you imagine how different we would live if we embraced those words all the time? No fear, the ability to freely love, to do what is in the best interest of other people. What a vision of loving God and loving one another and loving our community. Friends, let's together confess our faith, what it is that we believe, what it is that we stand upon. And this morning, we are looking at the Heidelberg Catechism, questions one and two. And so I will say the question, and you respond with the answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? What a beautiful confession that gives us such assurance and such comfort. Let's stand and sing together the song of praise, thy mercy, mercy, my God. be seated. By the very mercy and goodness of God, we are not only invited, but encouraged. God longs for and loves communion with his children. We have the opportunity to do that in our time of prayer. And so we will together recite the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a pastoral prayer.
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father, you are in heaven, and we praise you for your glory. We praise you that you are our refuge and help, an ever-present help in trouble. We thank you for your rule and reign. We thank you, Father, for your sovereign will. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, as we have acknowledged and remembered what happened 20 years ago yesterday, Lord, may it in your people's hearts cause us all the more to cry out, thy kingdom come. How can we not see the need for your kingdom, your rule, and your reign? Father, I do pray. We do remember, and there is so much we can say and pray, Father, as we think about still even 20 years later and what we know is continued trauma for so many families. Lord, we pray that we as a church would cry out, we'd lament, we'd grieve. We would call out for your name. We would pray that as a people, not just here at Lake Oconee, but throughout the country, throughout the world, that we would turn to you. That we would turn to you in humility. That we would humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. We long for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that we would be a people that don't just hear your word, but do your word, so that we are committed to doing your will on earth as it is in heaven. And we're reminded of our total dependence upon you when we pray for our daily bread, that we rely upon you, that we are truly capable in and of ourselves of nothing. We need you for everything, so give us this day our daily bread. And Lord, forgive us our debts. May we not forget that sin is not just out there, but it's in here. It's in our hearts. It's in our lives that we ourselves are sinners in need of grace. And that even as your people, we continue in so many ways to live under sinful patterns. So Lord, may we be truly a repentant people. And may we be a people depending upon you by asking you to lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Lord, we ask all of these things knowing that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. Amen.
be seated. Let's turn our attention now to the scripture text upon which our teaching is based this morning. It comes as we're continuing our study this morning with, of the book of Romans, what I like to call Paul's magnum opus, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we now approach your word, we ask that you would form us and shape us because you love us. Holy Spirit, we come under your word. We don't come above it. We don't come alongside it. We come under it. May it have authority in our lives. Speak to us, not to just give us information, but to give us formation, to cultivate Christ-likeness in us. Father, we thank you that you gave us your word because you love us, and it's a revelation of your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all remember where we were 20 years ago yesterday. For Evie and I, we were living in Oklahoma, and we were working on planting a church in the city or the town of Edmond, Oklahoma. And I had on that Tuesday morning, I had an early morning meeting with our dear friend, Chuck Garriott. He and I were meeting at what is still one of our favorite kind of eating spots, Brahms. Chuck and I were at Brahms. We were eating. When we got the call, you better get back to the church, turn on the TV, pay attention. Now, 20 years later, we need to recognize that we are still all called to remember. As a matter of fact, I didn't go and do like, I'm not going to bore you with the numbers, but it'd be an interesting scripture study to figure out how often in the scriptures we are called, we are commanded even, to remember. Think about the Lord's Supper that we're going to be taking in just a few moments. And what does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Interesting thing, though, about remembering in the Bible. It is not just a memory issue. That's not the concept of remembering in the Bible. It's not like we kind of go, Evie, what did I do with my car keys? I can't find my car keys. I need to remember what I did with my car. We have enough of those. But that's not the biblical concept of remembering. Remembering in the Bible has more to do with the concept of renewal. Renew yourselves in your relationship with God. Renew yourself. Why does Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? Be renewed in remembering what he did for you. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's table is his table, his supper. That's why I call it God's hospitality. He's saying, come to my feast. I need you to be, to remember, to be renewed in all that I have done for you. How I have given my body, how I have laid down my flesh, how I have shed my blood, how I have done all of this, and this is what you need to feed off of. And so we are called to remember the fallen, the families, the first responders. And as Christians, part of this remembrance, this renewal, is to have a biblical mindset in everything. So Paul, later on, and we'll get to this sometime, hopefully this decade, Romans chapter 12, says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in other words, hate and evil are realities, but we're not to be trapped by hate. We are to respond differently. 
as a church, as Christians, we are to respond different. We're to be counter-worldly, counter-cultural. Maybe I could even say counterintuitive in everything that we do. People shouldn't be looking at us and saying, oh yeah, that's what the left would say, or that's what the right would say. They should be, in a sense, going, that's an, where does that response come from? And guess what? We have an opportunity to tell them, don't we? And one of the things that part of this kind of having this biblical mentality is wrestling with the question of, where is God in all of these things? How does he intervene? Whether it's, now, things like 9-11 cause us to ask that question, but it's actually a bigger question than that. Yes, when circumstances like that happen, we're kind of hit in the face, aren't we? We're jolted again, and we ask questions like that. But really, we should be asking the question, where is God? How does God respond to me? How does God respond to things in the world? How does God respond to all sorts of things? Where is God? So in other words, what does divine intervention look like? In Romans 3, 21 to 24, Paul is showing us divine intervention, and he's showing us exactly what it looks like. So here I go. I'm going back to a two-point sermon this morning. That's because that was, that was a lengthy introduction, and it needed to be a lengthy... I'm not apologizing for that. It needed to be a lengthy introduction. But we're going to do a two-point sermon this morning. I want us to look at two perspectives in this text. The revelation of divine intervention and the result of divine intervention. The revelation and the result of divine intervention. Okay, first of all, the revelation of divine intervention. Now, we've got to remember the context again, what I will call Act 1 of Paul's letter to the Romans, which was Romans chapter... You had the prologue. See, I'm going to teach you how to outline a book of the Bible right now. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, was the prologue. And in the prologue, Paul stated his thesis. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then beginning at verse 18, so Act 1 is Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's on display. And he goes on to say exactly how it's on display. So Act 1 is all about the bad news. People, all people are helpless, powerless, hopeless, so that no human being will be justified in God's sight. All are in the same boat. This is the human condition. Act 1 ends with all alike are under sin. It's why I put in the reflection, and here I am, I'm referring to last week's reflection. See, I'm going to make sure you read these things I put in the bulletin. I work really hard on choosing these reflections. I want you to read them. But the English writer G.K. Chesterton, responding to an article, said, Dear sir, in response to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. See, one of the things having this biblical mindset, biblical mentality does, is it eliminates from us kind of this us versus them. We still see the reality of evil, the reality of hate, all of these things, but it's not just out there. Now, notice my words. Not just means it is out there, but guess where else it is? It's in here. It's in us. I think we should all imitate G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Me. I am. Which leads to the question... How is God going to respond? He's holy. He's just. Remember, this is all about the display of his righteousness. His righteousness is about his justice. So we should be shaking in our boots saying, uh-oh, I'm in trouble right now. If what's wrong with the world is me, and God has to punish it. Guess what I deserve? 
But we have one of those moments. It almost reminds me, if I can give you an analogy of those superhero movies. The situation looks hopeless, dire. What are they going to do? I'm going to go old school on you. I remember growing up as a kid, the Batman, not the Batman movies, the Batman TV show was on. Anybody remember the old Batman TV show? In the old Batman TV show, you had Batman and I loved Boy Wonder. He wasn't just Robin. He was the Boy Wonder. I used to love the Boy Wonder. And they always found themselves in this absolutely dire, hopeless situation. There'd be some sort of cliffhanger where the dynamic duo, they're held captive. Their situation feels hopeless. Okay, That's what we should be feeling. All alike are under sin. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Your situation is dire. It's a cliffhanger. The wages of sin is death. What is going to happen? And then something would happen in the old Batman TV show. Here comes the dynamic duo. They swoop in. And this was always my favorite part. Kapow! Kablam! Kablooey! All those things would come up. You do realize I was a seven-year-old boy. And you can't take the seven-year-old boy out of this 59-year-old somewhat of a man. So all of a sudden, across the TV screen, here's this kabow, kaboom, kaplooey. And all of a sudden, you had intervention. So now, and we learn, we need to learn to have a biblical mindset. Paul begins, verse 21, with the words. And I want you to underline, highlight, circle, memorize these words. I think they're the greatest words in the Bible. This is God's kabam kablooey. He says, but now. And you ought to be going, but now. What? But now. What? And feeling like, okay, help is coming. And it's coming, not from myself. See, God doesn't help those who help themselves. Because let me let you in on a secret. We can't help ourselves. What's wrong with the world? So you're going to memorize this Chesterton quote, too. What's wrong with the world? I am. So God can't help those who help themselves. But God swoops in from the outside. And as the theologian and worship director Robert Weber said in his book, The Divine Embrace, the crushing blow to all evil is found on the hardwood of the cross and in Christ's resurrection. Now, One of the things this teaches us in the way of application, and this is a hard thing. We want to know where is God, and we immediately are looking, we want to know where is God in my bad circumstance. And our suffering is real. We are not to take it for granted. We are not to minimize it. We are not to diminish it. It is real. But where is God in all of this? He heals. Sometimes he doesn't heal. Sometimes our suffering doesn't go away. There is trauma. There is death. Those things are very real. But listen to Weber's quote, the crushing blow to all evil. God's ultimate divine intervention is found on the hard wood of the cross and in Christ's resurrection. That's why it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I love how the PCA pastor Scotty Smith put it. He says, what are we aiming for in our Christian life and in the church? If it isn't the four-corner intersection of gospel beauty, spiritual renewal, compassionate orthodoxy, and robust worship. And friends, we are only going to live out of this four-corner intersection to the degree that we are gripped by our universal need of the gospel. This is why I'm going back over the bad news. Please forgive me, but not really. I'm doing this on purpose. It is only to the degree that you see the direness of your situation and then see God intervening that you can have these four corners, this gospel beauty in our life, robust worship compassionate 
orthodox. Notice both of these things. We are to be orthodox, but it's a compassionate orthodoxy. Spirit renewal. See, Romans, Act 1, Romans 1, 18 to 3.20 taught us the same thing. Let me put it in a biblical illustration. The same thing that Jesus taught Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Remember the story of Nicodemus? He came to Jesus at night seeking to know who Jesus was and what he was all about. And in verse 2 of John chapter 3 begins, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And I, I love that. How presumptuous of Nicodemus. We know. I'm glad Nicodemus thinks he knows. Because, and my pastor friend David Cassidy puts it this way, Jesus gives Nicodemus a verbal smackdown, cutting Nicodemus down to size. Because Nicodemus has no idea that he is a dead man with no hope apart from the wind blowing into his life and lungs. He needed resurrection. He needed to be born of the Spirit. Friends, that's the message of the first section of the book of Romans. Whether it's the obvious need, the atheism, the immorality that we see, or as Romans 2 and 3 explain, the religious type that Nicodemus so beautifully illustrates. Again, as David Cassidy states, he says, everything that Nicodemus imagined would commend him to God was in fact a barrier. It's not just crazy wild sins and failures that create barriers between us and God, but our religious sins, our self-salvation projects, our misguided, mismanaged attempts to offer up to God a good life that will somehow lead to his accepting or rewarding us. Eternal life is not a reward for the morally perfect. It is a gift, freely given to the broken. Can you see why Jesus chose to hang out with tax collectors and sinners? That Jesus himself was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard? That he hung out with the broken. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other words, it was always there. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they bore witness to it. It's not like it was a new concept. It was always... But now it's being fully revealed, manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, which leads us to the second point. So that's the revelation of divine intervention. Now let's look at the result of divine intervention. And verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, this righteousness is now revealed to be the result. It's ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Theologians, commentators call this the heart of the epistle. They say the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Think about this. Jesus represents his people. Jesus is our substitute. The good life we were supposed to live, called to live, Jesus lives for us. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, Jesus died the death that we should have died, and he lived the life that we should have lived. And as a result, what is true of us what others can see, and what we, only we know about ourselves, and what only God knows about us. What is true of us becomes true of him, and what is true of him becomes true of us. Do we get that? That is absolutely amazing. That is utterly astounding. And this is what will lead to the degree... Not only that we cognitively understand it, like it's information, but to the degree that we appropriate this in our life, this is the only thing that's going to lead, as Scotty Smith said, to that four-corner intersection of gospel beauty, spiritual renewal, compassionate orthodoxy, and robust worship. See, think about this. What is true of us? We're sinners. 
And on the cross, Jesus is treated as we deserve to be treated. And what is true of him? He's righteous. He's faithful. He's obedient. He's loving. He's, you want to know what's true of him? I'll give you a hint. Here's what you read. Read 1 Corinthians 13. One of the best descriptions of what is true of Jesus. Read the Beatitudes. That's true of Jesus. Read the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's true of Jesus. Now, the heart of this justification, this doctrine we're looking at, is that what's true of Jesus, because we're united to Jesus... Remember John Calvin, that great theologian? Don't we claim to be Calvinists around here? I sometimes wonder if we're fooling ourselves. Calvin said, unless you're united to Christ, meaning in him, one with him, and folded and grafted into him, all of his benefits remain outside of us. But if you're engrafted in him, all the benefits. So you know how God looks at you? Do you realize God sees you as not one who's unkind? as not one who's selfish, as not one who doesn't love their enemies, as not one who's judgmental. He sees you as you are, what's true of him becomes true of you. It's amazing. He is righteous. See, we're justified by his grace, and all of this is a gift. It is received as a gift. Notice verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, God's righteousness has affected a new kind of being whose faith is the signal that their life is constructed, not in the normal configuration of human existence, but from Christ. One of the things that Evie and I have discovered living here in Georgia is you guys have violent thunderstorms. I mean, when it rains, it really rains. I don't remember what day it was this week. Wednesday, maybe? Something like that? I, I was thinking I should uh, be singing to myself when peace like a river, and I looked out at my front yard, and I'm going, well, there's the river. I've got the visual. It's raining. Jack Miller used to always say, he described faith this way, he says, what must we do to receive this righteousness? He would say, it's like the earth receiving the rain. See, think about it. What does the earth do to receive the rain? Last I looked, kind of nothing. It just lays there. And all of a sudden, see, you look, see I can be looking and kind of going, Oh, what happened to our plants? What happened? To, and all of a sudden, it, believe me, I didn't do anything. I don't work out there. I'm not going near any of that. Green thumb, I don't even know if I have thumbs. Okay? I, don't, I look in the plants, and then all of a sudden it rains, and guess what? They're blooming. They're beautiful. Fruit. How does it happen? By receiving the rain, life happens. Friends, do you understand that the way to be more loving, more kind, the way to be a different kind of community, a beautiful community, a community that transcends all the divisions of left and right, all the divisions that we see in the world, a community that truly puts love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control on display is by receiving and daily, continually receiving the righteousness of Christ. We do need to be more disciplined at receiving Christ's righteousness, at receiving that as our identity. Our identity is not where we stand on an issue or anything like that. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And we need to learn to stand in that. One more implication before we go to the supper. Hearing this might make one think, wait a second, I love this. this is, Jeff said, all I have to do is receive this like the earth drinks in the rain. That means do nothing. I do nothing. I just believe. I do nothing. So I get this gift, forgiveness and righteousness, and then I go do whatever I want. 
this sounds like a great deal. Sign me up for We have revival. Thousands are becoming Christians. And then, of course, you know what happens? Us preachers, we get nervous. Start to sweat in our palms a little bit. Leaders, you know, we start to think, uh uh-oh, be careful. If I teach this too radically, it's going to lead to this kind of, you know, there's even a technical word for this. It's called antinomianism. And preachers are like, I don't want to be accused of that. No. So you know what we do? Rather than trust the gospel, we water down the gospel. It's a very wrong thing to do. See, this is the teaching. And I, I'm gonna, we need to let it be and let it sound as scandalous as it really is. You are really forgiven as far as the east is from the west. So in a way, and I don't know if Martin Luther really said this or not, but it's attributed to him. Who knows what he said and what he didn't say? but kind of along the lines of receive Christ, receive forgiveness, receive his righteousness, and then go do whatever you want. I'm going to tell you, go do that. I dare you. Let it be as scandalous. God, as Steve Brown, the theologian, the writer, the radio. Have you ever listened to Steve Brown on the radio, by the way? I don't know if any of you all have ever heard Steve Brown on the radio. Great listen. He talks about how scandalous this is. And he says, God really likes you. David Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say to preachers, he says, if you aren't accused in your preaching of teaching antinomianism, you're probably not preaching the gospel. As far as the east is from the west, so far are your sins removed from you. And I want us to look at one more thing out of this text. Look with me at verse 24, and understand the implication here. Understand what the text is saying. Here's why I can tell you and why I can dare to say, believe in Jesus and do whatever you want. And you're all going, "Uh aha, here's the catch. Here it comes. But look at this. Verse 24 says, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Did you see that connection? See, I'm teaching you to memorize scripture. You got the words, but now, now I'm going to teach you to be Bible scholars. Look at the connections in there. The connection that was there, justified by his grace as a gift through. That means by means of. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is redemption? See, we need to understand that biblical concept and the implication of it. One commentator says, redemption is a technical term for buying back a slave from a slave market or an object from a pawn shop. In other words, what Paul has in mind here is a new exodus where Jesus is delivering us, where Jesus is freeing us from being slaves to sin. And he's doing through, so through the payment of his own life. He's buying us back. We were slaves to sin And Jesus says, I'll pay the price of their life, and he's crucified. And we are bought back so that we belong to him. Now, see, that is very important. Through his paying of his very own life, he buys us back, which means, here's the implication, we do not belong to ourselves. This is very, very crucial, and I'm afraid it's very crucial in our day and age. Biblical freedom is not the same thing as autonomy. Autonomy is you have the liberty, you have the quote-unquote freedom to do whatever it is you want. Biblical freedom is you have been bought by Jesus Christ. He shed his blood, he gave his life so that you would belong to him. And it frees you, and it gives you real freedom, so much better freedom than autonomy can ever give. It gives you the freedom to live, to cultivate, to grow. It's a progressive thing. Believe me, it doesn't come all at once. But to grow in what we were designed and created by God to do, which is love God and love others. And biblical freedom is that. And that's why you've been given this legal status as forgiven, not condemned, righteous. You have that actual status. That is who you are. So that without defensiveness, without fear, without having to vindicate yourself and prove yourself, 
you can now live as free people, not autonomous people. So you can actually see it's actually illogical and contradictory to say that we're justified so that we can live any old way we want. For we are justified through the redemption, the buying back that is in Christ Jesus. We belong to him, which gives us true freedom. The freedom to live for God and to love others. Friends, this and this alone will lead to gospel beauty, spirit renewal, compassionate orthodoxy, and robust worship. This is why I say the church is the hope for the world today. Let's pray. Father, I I get almost speechless sometimes when I come in contact with the gospel. I thank you so much that we are justified by your grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Teach us as a people to live not autonomously but freely as a people who belong to you. Lord, now thank you for this supper where we are welcomed by you, our hosts, to come to your table and to feed off you and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death. This is a family meal. What does it mean to recognize the body of the Lord? Well, at least two things. One, it means that we need to recognize our need for him and be believers, be a part of the family. So I want to invite you here this morning. If you're sitting here and you've never been a part of the family of God, I invite you to receive Jesus Christ. I invite you to receive him as a, be the earth drinking in the rain. Drink it in and it can be as simple as a prayer saying, Father... Accept me because of what Jesus has done. And you want to know what the Father does? He welcomes you with open arms and says, come to his table. You're invited to come and eat and drink. The second implication of recognizing the body of the Lord is, you know who's called the body of the Lord in the Bible? The church. We are the body of Christ, the family of God. And so we need to recognize, we don't take this. See, let me share with you something about American discipleship. We're way too individualistic. Everything's about application to me. Me, mine, you. We need to start thinking we and us and our. Recognizing the body of the Lord. So I just want to encourage and challenge us. What's our relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters? Family members for whom Christ died. Does it mean everybody will be our best friend? Well, that's not practical. Of course not. But what it means is that this is an opportunity to repent if we're holding on to any bitterness, if we're holding on to unforgiveness. It's an opportunity for us to recognize this is my family for whom Jesus died. He's purifying a people for himself. We are his treasured possession. Remembering all of this, all of this is part of what it means to be renewed in the covenant. And this is what God is doing in us now. Hopefully you picked up one of these little, uh, what do I call them, doojickies things? We're still using them just so you know. There's like 700 of them remaining. Not that I'm teaching on stewardship this morning, but what kind of stewardship would we be practicing if we just threw them all out? So, just so you know why we're doing so. Hopefully you all received that. And so we have that. 
Let's pray and ask the Lord to set apart these elements for his holy use. Father, thank you for feeding us. We're hungry. Thank you for filling us. We're empty. We come to you with only need, and you give us yourself. We ask that you would set apart these elements for their holy use now, that you would renew this as we do this in remembrance of you. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus, not giving up on humanity, but loving us, redeeming us, buying us back. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Lord, thank you for your table, and thank you for this meal. We thank you that this means of grace feeds us with grace. And as we leave here today, we do pray that you would enable us to live by grace, to be a people who are gripped by grace. Father, thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite us to stand as we sing our closing hymn this morning, which is Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me.
Friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.